0: My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Professor Ephraim Radner. And as we get going, Ephraim, would you mind um, just kind of introducing yourself so people listening might know who you are if they don't already?
1: Oh, great, thank you, Wyatt. It's really a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you. Um, So I teach at Wycliffe College uh, at the University of Toronto. It's an evangelical Anglican school that trains ordinance, but also has a pretty, uh, broad doctoral program through the Toronto School of Theology of the University of Toronto. So I teach theology there, and I'm an Anglican priest. I've been so for close to 40 years. Um, grew up in the U.S. and spent a number of years on the front end of my ministry working in Burundi in East Africa, which I mentioned because it was highly formative to the way I've uh, both looked at the church and and other things, but also if we're going to talk about scripture, it also helped frame or reorient my thinking to scripture in a big way. And then I worked pastorally in various places, most recently in Colorado before moving here about 15 years
0: ago. So Mm. now a
1: Canadian citizen as well as a U.S. citizen.
0: Congratulations. Now you can pay tax in two countries.
1: (laughs) Well, no, you have to pay it whether you're a citizen or not. So you that it doesn't actually get you many benefits except
0: uh, voting, which is a bit real benefit. Now, I was uh I was telling you before we recorded that the so I've read your online stuff, but the only published book of yours that I read is is Time in the Word. So that'll be maybe the easiest way for me to access your thought. But we can kind of go anywhere. It's interesting. In your introduction, you actually talk about uh, your uh, as a Brandy where you were um, doing ministry and how that kind of shaped things. So, so, maybe I could start this way. How did doing pastoral ministry help you to think about approaching scriptural scripture in a figural way, as you describe in this book, "Time in the Word"? Like, what, what was that kind of that practical ministry? How did that affect your perception of the Word of Christ or Scripture? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, that's a that that's a challenging question uh, because nothing nothing happened with the switch of a a light or something. But I think, you know, 25 years at least, I worked uh, pretty regularly uh, pastorally, preaching every week and so on and so forth, and working with Bible studies and adult ed and pastoral situations. I think the real question is, what is the relationship of scripture to people's daily lives in this kind of Uh, set of relationships you can observe day by day. And one of the things that became clear to me, and it's even clearer now than it was when I sort of began thinking about this more specifically, um, it's even clearer now given the shape of our culture, is uh, basically the way uh, more and more people's daily lives, their self-understanding, their self-identity, their relationships as they're struggling to sort out what to do with family and work and so on, is utterly disconnected from a sense of integrated uh, reality. And you can be a very faithful Christian and take the scripture very seriously, but that doesn't mean you see your life as deeply integrated with um, the the truth of the world, which is ultimately God's truth. And I, I think I saw increasingly scripture being you know, even as I say, amongst people who are very committed to scripture, being meant being a guide. Now, a high view of scripture meant you thought of scripture as an authoritative guide to life. And what I, which is good, but what I discovered pastorally is that's not enough. Um, the issue isn't making decisions. The issue is coherence. And our culture is an utterly incoherent culture with respect to what a human being is and what it means to be born and to grow and to, uh, you know, have a family or not, or but then weaken and to die. Now, that was one of the things is facing as a pastor, you face a lot of deaths regularly. And a lot of them are with people who aren't all that well adept in their Christian faith, and even many who are. And they're just at a loss at that point. Life can seem to be going along merrily, um, or at least in some kind of um, sensible fashion. And you face death, your own, somebody you love, your kids, God forbid, whatever. And uh, deer in the headlights, that's that's my uh, characterization of the majority of people I've met both in and outside the church in the face of death. And And so it's this coherence of life. And where does scripture fit into that? And what I came more and more to see is that, um, you know, now I'm using theological terminology that has been used. The question isn't so much having scripture tell me what to do in the world, but realizing that my world is a part of scripture, um, that the whole of my life is already contained in scripture. And that's something I was taught bit by bit, both you mentioned Burundi, uh, other places amongst people, for whom uh, that relationship of their lives being already a part of scripture and something to be exposed and manifested in scripture, um, as well as something I read about and was challenged in my studies academically as I read more and more about how people engage scripture in, in, in a pre-modern, mostly, not just, well, certainly a pre-contemporary period. Okay, and- you, said,
0: you said a lot of really interesting things. Um, so one sentence that comes to mind on what you talk about this integrated view of the world Uh, george grant once said i think it was him beyond space and time there is order and you can maybe think lowercase or capital case order however you want to do that but there is a real sense that there is a sort of order to things and you're part of this greater whole and so maybe that's another kind of idiom to say something similar to what you're saying to, is integrated reality. Another way, um, so you can tell me if I'm wrong on that, by the way, another way that maybe is, is that, I'm, that I'm hearing you is to say like, um, reality, the real world is the context for scripture. And what I mean by that is, I think it's really interesting. Sometimes you think about like, what are the context of scripture and you, there's historical background language, but, but the real world. <laughs> Con- like, if you if you know what's really real, then it will help you to interpret scripture.
1: Yeah, okay. So can I jump in?
0: Yeah, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, it's good.
1: to pick up those two things. So right, the, George Grant, there's this order behind everything, and then there's the question of the real context of scripture. What I've come to believe more and more, without necessarily being able to understand it, is that that real order to reality is scripture. And it's not so much that the context of scripture is the real world. I under, I think I understand what you mean in terms of expanding that, but it'd be the other way around. The context of the real world is scripture. Scripture precedes the real world. Why? Because it represents in some sense, using uh, more traditional terminology, the mind of God. Mm. Scripture is the mind of God. Um, and as a, it, it, to that extent, it is... The way God has ordered creation. Um, Mm. And it it represents the relationship of creation to God according to his purposes. Um, So people use this, quote this phrase from George Limbeck, who was the uh, theologian I worked with on my dissertation at Yale, um, who died uh, just a few years ago. Scripture absorbs the world. Now mm-hmm. that makes it sound like there's the world over here, and there's scripture, and the goal is to to have all the world absorbed. But he meant it in a in a sort of logically prior way. Scripture actually gives us the world; it's already absorbed in scripture. And and as I say, that I've been I've been I've been reflecting and, and thinking about this. I think more and more. Uh, I believe it. Um our lives, our cultures, our societies, all the funny things in our world that we think are so particular and time-specific and culturally limited, are actually already given to us in their meaning. For good or ill, the meaning isn't that it's all good, but scripture, they're all there in all the stories and teachings and words, because they're not words. Uh, Primarily, uh, they are words, but they're divine words. They're God's words. So they precede all human words and human conceptions and so on and so forth. It's a different way I realize of looking at scripture than even many high evangelical views of scripture um, um, pursue, but it's also a very traditional view in certain tradi- uh, certain Jewish and Christian traditions as well. Um, so, I mean, I could go into that, but that's neither here nor there.
0: Well, it, it maybe it's useful for me to think like, I'm, I'm trying to, with my mind, <laughs> picture what you're saying maybe i can't do that actually so if if the word of god scripture precedes the world and all that's in the world is contained in it uh, in what sense is it contained in it? It, it like is it something as um i know not as simple as this but is it something as simple as saying in the narratives and poetry and language the divine words of scripture you see, uh, like you see like the major ideas that are echoed throughout history? Is it something like that or okay. what?
1: So that, 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 that's a helpful question because that's not really what I mean. Although mm. that's, not, that's not wrong per se, but it's not enough. Um, I mean, we think of the Christian life uh, following somebody like Paul and others as a, a, whether it's gradual or not, a conformance to Christ. Let's say our lives, but again, gradually or however we want to think of it, come to be conformed, to look like, to be shaped as Jesus Christ himself. He is the second Adam. He is the one who our own human lives become more and more like, but because in some sense, he already holds them. That's the point. Now, that, that we think, in, you know, I don't know but people think about that in many different ways, but it's not thematic. I mean, it could be, it could, you could say, well, Jesus is loving, so I'm going to be more loving or whatever. But I think Paul certainly means more than that. And I think usually we sense more than that when we think of conformance to Christ is not following a set of, of, of thematic, ethical, or, or psychological states and conditions. We actually become one with him in some fashion. Again, we participate him. It's, we're part of his body. There's lots of language uh, in scripture about our connection to to Jesus that makes conformance more than a thematic analogy. I would say that that is what I'm talking about with Scripture. Our lives conform to Scripture, to all of Scripture, uh, and, and they—that's because they're already there. But we recognize, just as we're already in the second Adam, in some sense, he has taken on human nature. Uh, it's revealed more and more and our failures to to not be conformed become problematic. They're burnt up, however you want to look at it. Hmm. Um, But but our lives are already given in scripture in both their gifts and their judgments. I do want to stress that side of it. Hmm. Um, The judgment of our lives is already laid bare somewhere. Now, I just want to say another thing. The thematic aspect that you brought up makes sense, but it's too narrow. How do we get then the complexity of our lives in 21st century, wherever it is, Canada, Toronto, US, Burundi, how do we find them in scripture, given how complex they are? Well, thats we have to understand that scripture, we accept the fact that scripture itself is infinitely complex. That's a, that is a fundamental uh, 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 premise to make what I'm saying make any sense at all. And that means you have to read it in a way that is open to the infinite complexity of scripture. That's why I go the book you mentioned, the whole figural character of reading scripture, it's not a method, it's it's an attitude in the face of the infinite glory, richness, texturedness, complexity of scripture. That you're constantly spending your whole life reading it and finding the truth of who you are in it and of the world, every aspect.
0: You've said a lot of uh, interesting things again. So let me, um, let me illustrate something that I think is a common way of reading scripture, which is much different than what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us view the Bible as a book that contains either explicit commands or parables and stories that you can boil down to sort of a single principle and then the goal is to figure out what that sentence is that proposition and then what you do is you say this is god's will do it but there's not necessarily a, a line of thinking that uh, you need to understand the rational basis for all these these things it, it's more or less i know this is maybe uh, too strong to say but a little bit like a voluntaristic reading of scripture as sort of mere command and then then of course you get you, scripture is not as complex as you're making it out to be of course as much it's simple it's you boil everything down to singular idea which is thus saith the lord whatever that idea ends up being so you read a parable of jesus and it's just one sentence um i think probably a lot of people read scripture that way so How does someone move from from what I'm saying to at least make baby steps towards what what you're saying?
1: Well, I think people do do it. See, one of my arguments in that book early on is, in fact, that this way of reading scripture never disappeared. Uh, there has been a historical view that you know the early church read i don't know spiritually allegorically this that and the other and then the middle ages uh got it, made it worse and then the reformation came along and cleaned it all up as you said simplified it and 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 then modernity may have messed it up by simplifying it in the wrong way but in any case um that sort of that that kind of more uh complex way of reading scripture which might might be tied up with spiritual reading as people have called it, or figural reading and the early church has disappeared. It hasn't. Pentecostalism still does do it. And most people do it when they read the Psalms. When people read the Psalms, that is what they're doing. Now, some people do read the Psalms and appropriately, they look for the command. They look for this, that, and the other. That, or, But most people do not read the Psalms that way when they read them. They wonder, find themselves in the Psalms.
0: Right. Um,
1: the various voices of the Psalms, it's complicated. So I would say, you know, and and that's why I think that that those Christian traditions that do make Psalm reading personally, as well as corporately central, that's one of the things I have learned in the Anglican tradition, which has a daily office, if you follow it, morning and evening prayer, in which the Psalter is central, Um, that's been helpful. Certainly helpful in my life.
0: My my mic is literally on the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> yeah, there you are. I, well,
1: and you know, the, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who in the 16th century put that together, he was trying to take what monks did and and simplify it so that everybody could do that. Morning prayer, evening prayer. You have You have Psalms that are laid out to be said every day so that in one month, you will have read through and heard the Psalter, all of the 150 Psalms. Then you'll start over again the next month and the next month. And by by... By, um, you know, and what happens in 10 years? Well, in 10 years, I don't know, this is too much for me. 10 times 12 is 100. Anyway, you have been through the Psalter 120 times. and so Now, nobody does that, except a few people. But in the past, people have done it much more than they do it now, and including, you know, normal people did it.
0: Um, I think you're entirely right. And the Psalms themselves are sort of that, Crucible to, to cross in order to to get to where you're going. This kind of reminds me, so um, Athanasius tells a story that he he learned from an old an older gentleman about the Psalms, and then he relays all these things that he learned about the Psalms, and at one point he says, uh, I can't, it's a, in my memory, but this idea that the Psalms are basically a mirror to your soul. They, they show you yourself in them as you lament with the lamenters or praise with the praisers, What's fascinating is that this tradition, if you kind of trace it, goes all the way up. And then Calvin, in his commentary on the, the Psalter or the Psalms, he, u- he, he basically cribs Athanasius. I don't re- even remember if he quotes him, but he, he uses the same metaphors and analogies. And then I'm reminded as well, in the first chapter of your book, you cite Calvin and you cite him in a letter. I can't remember what the letter is. Where Calvin is saying that the the Old Testament texts about exile are meant to be for us, and he is reading, therefore, Scripture into his experience in a way that
1: the other way around. His or the other way around.
0: Okay. Yeah. What? What, what did that? Okay, wait. Say. Say it the right way.
1: He reads his experience.
0: Okay. Reads his in experience the scripture. into Scripture. Yeah. And um I kind of think. So maybe what I was getting at earlier is a lot lot of times you go to um, divinity school and you learn how to preach and what you're taught to do is to derive that sort of principle, that singular idea. And I think what you were saying was what the average person does. Like when you read scripture, you read it in a sort of intuitive spiritual sense. You're not necessarily doing grammatical (laughs) exegesis or diagramming or whatever.
1: You're doing something that comes more natural to this so the premise is one premise is its infinite complexity but another premise is it is God's I mean that's why it's infinitely complex it is God's therefore in its power so when we read it it is not in the first instance our mind that orders its words the we we do do that and we should try to do that up to a point in the first instance it is scripture that orders our minds because it's the power of God at work it is the Holy Spirit speaking, it is the Holy Spirit uh, touching us, if you will, externally and shaping us. So I do, I understand scripture as a divine power, not a set of words uh, in a human language, first of all. It is, first of all, God's actual power at work, which come to us through these words that we are permitted to understand in our languages. Um, But but, but so, you know, when somebody reads scripture and they don't understand it or they do this and that, it's not, it's not they're waiting, you know, they're learning the skills so that they get better and better to understand it. Hopefully there's some of that, but actually they're submitting to the act of God at work in their lives in the first instance. So it takes, scripture takes us somewhere. It doesn't simply give us something that we're then meant to figure out. It it takes us somewhere
0: first. So some of the the scriptural passages that are just popping to my head are, like Paul in Romans one, where he identifies the I think the gospel there as the power of God, or 1 Corinthians two sixteen, but we have the the mind of Christ, which is nous, nous, I think probably news to, uh, to Christu. We have the noose of Christ. Romans twelve, or to renew our renew our minds, which I kind of interpret as <laughs> because we have the mind of Christ sort of idea. Are these the kinds of passages that are informing how you think about the nature of scripture, or is it something a little bit bigger and outside of those kinds of narrow Bible citations that I'm doing? So no, when no they're they they're, they're,
1: they're definitely biblical this biblical texts that talk about it. Yeah. There are others though. Also, I, I think in the book I mentioned the the Jeremiah's anvil and 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 the the, the, the steel that hits us a god's work is banging us uh it is a you know two-edged sword as well and hebrews and so on these are the cuts so there's there's mm-hmm. a there's a, a power to scripture that can be gentle and also violent
0: so, so independent from our subjective reading Correct. there's a power and that power is the, the power of god right it's maybe mediated through the, 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 the terminates in the person of the spirit perhaps in terms of our experience but it's god Yes. Okay, so uh, I'm I'm hearing that, and yet sometimes I'm going to read scripture, and I'm going to read uh, something like "Go to the land of Canaan and exterminate the peoples there." So, what do you, like maybe it's just a broader question. There's there's certain kinds of violence or things that seem to be not obviously for us <laughs> in a way that makes sense in our Christian experience. How, how does your view of scripture help us to read, or even just like Levitical law, like Leviticus four? I know you wrote a commentary on Leviticus. Actually, oh, so I have read. Never mind. I have your Leviticus commentary too, so I have read uh, more of your published writings. Um, how does how does your view of scripture help us to read those kinds of texts, or at least process and think about them?
1: Well, so um, if scripture, the t- two sides to that. Um, They go back to what I said earlier about these premises, if you will. If scripture is infinitely complex, obviously, one of the things we do when we hear these things we don't understand, that disturb us, that whatever, is we keep searching. We keep following. We read more and more of it. And I think that was, uh, for better or worse, I think generally for better, the response of the early church, people like Origen and so on, who... Picked up the kinds of texts you just mentioned, you know, uh, the killing the Amalekites and things like that. That that we have to keep reading more and more of Scripture to understand what that, if you will, violent kind of text is pressing us for. Now he ended up with a with a way of interpreting it that aimed this at mostly at our individual, Augustine himself, our individual sins. Those are the Amalekites or the Canaanites or the whoever that are being exterminated, not individual people. Um, I don't think that's wrong because the other side of it is, I know it's not it's not popular to say this, but God is a violent God. Um, and there's much in scripture that talks about God's violence, which we have to, that doesn't mean we do it, but it means we have to we have to stand before and acknowledge, and what does that do? It leads us to all kinds of places, including fear—the fear, the fear well, think, of God.
0: I think everybody and, knows that justice requires violence sometimes, right? Like if a police officer is preventing a crime, there has to be some sort of violence occasionally. So, but you—sorry, you keep going. Did you want to say more? maybe well, I no, I'm
1: just saying that knowing this, we 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 will by 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 not. I guess what I want to say in part about the tech kind of text you're talking about by not coming to a place where, where we have resolved the text. This is what it means. Uh, You know, it's all a spiritual allegorical thing. It's all about bad people. It's all, or it's, it's about the primitive Israelites and they didn't understand mercy and they had to wait for Jesus to figure out all this stuff wasn't the right way to do it. Instead of resolving these sorts of texts, we hold on to them and allow them to shape mm. us. Why? So that we can understand God more deeply. So These are God's words. Right. That is God telling us about killing the Amalekites and, the, and so on. That well, is God. Inter-
0: yeah. the, the interesting thing is, that's maybe a good test case to see how there's a bit of a diverse perception. Like, I think someone like Greg Boyd, Gregory Boyd, might say this is more like the primitive Israel Correct. kind of view. Someone like Origen would say the way in which the New Testament takes these passages is, is spiritualize them. So we ought to as well. Interestingly enough, one of the most famous sermons of uh, a pastor named John MacArthur in California is called, I think, Hacking Agag to Pieces from First Samuel. And if I remember right, he, in, he may not say he is, but in essence, he's allegorizing the text. And it becomes, I think, uh, destroying your own sin or something like that. So it, it is really interesting that the, vi- the, the sort of violent texts in the Old Testament have this capacity to challenge people to come to what we might say are extreme conclusions.
1: And that brings a third premise to how I would view this. We've got complexity. We've got the power of God. But the third premise is that as the word of God, the whole scripture in its primary reference is to Christ Jesus.
0: Mm, He's the subject of scripture.
1: um, Who is the the inclusive, but I mean, he's a complicated, he's God, he's the God man. So he's got the the, the unlimited, boundless, mysterious, infinite character of God along with his human, along with, I mean, they're integrated somehow. Anyway, that means that Agag and, and the Amalekites and so on do refer to him. And I do think that you know how do you do that? Uh, well, one of the most uh, traditional ways of doing that is understanding the violent texts. I talk about that in my Leviticus commentary: the violent texts of, of of the Bible as ultimately pointing to his body, which is the place where violence is done, and that's always a place where you can't resolve a text. I mentioned not not trying to resolve a text but living with it, you can live with it by letting it sit upon Christ.
0: Um, And I think um, actually really connected, that's interesting, is that you look at a passage like Acts 15 where the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are conversing I think, with Paul and Barnabas and others to figure out the Gentile mission. They cite Amos 9. And Amos 9, in its at least Hebrew setting, is somewhat violent. It's the the tent of David will be restored, and there will be sort of a subjection of the peoples of the world. And it seems to me that James there interprets that, or I guess everyone there, understands that sort of, I don't want to say violent, but the the conquering text as being applied to the church age, it being applied to more of a spiritual fulfillment. And so there there might be a sense of what the apostles themselves are Receiving some of the Old Testament promises that include subjugation in terms of salvation, which is how, um, for example, Gregory of Nyssa will take the subjugation in First Corinthians 15 at the end there.
1: But it's it was, also the case that that Jesus rules, if you will, subjugates the world through the cross.
0: And so well, there's something I, to that, right? Yeah, there is. There's,
1: but it also, what I'm saying there, it's also not just a spiritualization. It has fleshly right. consequences.
0: Yeah, it's, it's maybe not, yeah, it's not everything. But this is interesting. So in your book too, like, okay, so, so yeah, Christ is the center. So in Amos 9, by the way, I mean, it's, it's Christ, he's the new David and so on. But you also talk about time, which is really interesting. I think you say something to the fact that time belongs to creaturely existence. But it's not the case that time, as we experience, it belongs to God. And so, you know, talk about Augustine, how he, sees, he sees everything simultaneously present How does that then play into your view of scripture? Because if it's the power of God and God is somehow super temporal, however, you want to word it, what is does that play into this power of God that's able to be read? I
1: I wouldn't say that time doesn't belong to God. Time
0: does
1: belong to God. He he I mean it's the order of
0: time. Okay, yeah.
1: Um, and I would also say that God contains all times. Mm. That's part of this infinite complexity of scripture because which reflects the fact that it is God, God's power. Um, in that sense, you see the times of our times can be found in the scriptural times because God contains all times.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe that's what I was trying to get at, but you're, you're seeing it in your own words, which is obviously more helpful. So, OK, so is that why is that part of the answer of why scripture can be read into the experience of all peoples across geography and yes. time? Yes,
1: because they are there already. Now how mm-hmm. that works, I mean, I have a little thing in the book where I, I, it's probably just a footnote, I can't remember where I i refer to at least one theoretical physicist to, you know, the, the issue of what time is, has fascinated more recently. Um, uh, physicist, especially theoretical physicists, because it's not an easy thing to sort out simply on the basis of quantifiable measurements. Um, but there's certainly a lot of different views out there that uh, by, sec- if you will, secular scientists, some of which about time, some of which include a kind of, it's not simultaneity of time, because that's, that's confusing things, that's using a temporal term to describe Time in a way that it isn't, um, but but you get the point. You're right, uh, bringing things together. That 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 time is a set of relationships that God holds, and that God orders, and it's not a container. I think that's that's a key thing. I mean, the, the, uh, people have made a distinction between seeing time as a container or time as a set of relationships. That's a well-known distinction in modern philosophy. Um, And I would certainly stand on the side of time as a set of relationships that are ordered by God. And that he can reorder, by the way. Reorder it for us in different ways as he sees fit that we'll never quite understand. So, you know, is the past dead and gone? No. That one is clear scripturally.
0: There's a lot of interesting questions you could have, too, about like, so, for example, when you die, your body is in the ground and decays you go somewhere else and then the resurrection happens. So how do we experience time when we're somewhere else? But I yeah, I don't want to maybe jump. I mean, that's so speculative. But one thing I did want to mention is that there, there's a way of reading origin in on first principles to see him saying, I think something similar to what you're saying, in which um, because in the mind of God is, is wisdom or the word, that in the word is all the, Affects the created effects all of us all of us people and so sometimes origins accuse of believing in the, in the pre-existence of souls in a very kind of interesting way but one way of reading origin is, is not so much that he believes in some sort of real history of souls in heaven but actually that all of those souls are real because they're in the mind of god oh,
1: right i mean temporally speaking you can't have pre-existing souls before creation makes no sense now yeah uh, I mean, it's just a contradiction in terms. There's no before to time. There's no before time.
0: There's never a Something time. Something else, but it's not before.
1: I mean, I'm not saying that that the world is eternal or anything like that, unless you look at time as this sort of endless series of moments. I'm just saying that applying the word before to time is an, it's an analogy, it's not. Mm. And so souls, you can't have pre-existent souls. Um, in in heaven, somehow, what heaven is, I not obviously don't really know. You but heaven may well contain all of re, all, all of historical reality in some a non historical way. I mean, these are these are very tricky, impossible, and we're not asked to understand them.
0: Uh, well, that's a good point. Yeah, but the, um, but you are you are like I know that you're saying that the that a person reads scripture in the sort of intuitive way where it interprets you. But you are trying to give it a sort of theoretical foundation as well in your writing.
1: Well, in a way, except I'm, I'm, I know my, my writing is notoriously hard to follow and um, um, complicated, unduly so, for which I apologize to everybody. Um, but in any case, I am trying to say, though, what what we actually what we what we know when we read scripture even though we don't put it into words so i'm not trying so much as to be theoretical as to put into speech what our presuppositions are as christians who to read. kind of scripture.
0: name our intuitions about what scripture yeah. is
1: yeah and i think you know i think we've been we have been led astray by not by not taking seriously what those presuppositions are and making use of other theoretical frameworks to try to explain it, whether they're logical or grammatical or physical or, you know, whatever. Uh, And in doing so, we've narrowed. It's not that they're wrong. They're right within a very narrow framework, but scripture itself um, overleaps all those frameworks. Mm. Um, It has to, if it is the Holy Spirit speaking or the uh, verbal instantiation of the word of God. It has to see. I my, my view is that is that you know many evangelicals and others have too low a view of scripture. They should have a much higher view of scripture. Um, it's too low. Uh, it 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 it, uh, it reduces it to the the disciplines of human discourse, to which are granted great authority. But that's an odd sort of combination. I grant, I grant divine authority to human words and methods of understanding them. When in fact these are divine words, um, to which we are granted some some privilege to be to encounter them, that that go far beyond our ability and capacities to grasp. Um, the scripture is is, yeah, it's not like any other book because simply it's authoritative. It's not like any other book at all. It's unique in the whole world of things. Um, well, I think
0: it, that's that's helpful. Um, you've probably named one of our weaknesses and it's that we almost tame scripture and we enwrap it into our method our methods and our conclusions. you do, you do a perfect historical and grammatical analysis of a text and you're done. You figured it out and you move on. But I think what, at least what you're trying to say in one area is scripture is the word of God. It's infinite in its capacity because it's divine. And therefore it's, it can't be tamed by you. Well, um, I,
1: yeah, I am saying that I've been accused of being a bibliolater uh, mm-hmm. in the sense of making, you know, so elevating the place of scripture as to take the place of God. And um, I wouldn't want to say that it is not God in word verbal form, but it is as close to God in verbal form as anything that could be imagined.
0: Um, Words of God from the Word of God. Um, well, let yeah. me. Yeah. Let me. Um, I, I want to protect your time here. So let's let's um, bring this to a close by letting me ask you, um, what books of yours have you written that might help? people to make the inscrutable, scrutable. <laughs> and also right. what would you recommend that's not written by you on the topic of scripture, Holy spirit, that kind of stuff.
1: Okay. Here's, here's, let me do the last one first because I've only recently sort of decided that this is the answer I would give to a question like that. What to read about scripture.
0: <laughs> scripture.
1: It is a four page or even less depending on the size of the print story by Anton Chekhov. Called The Student. And the
0: student, I'm just writing this down.
1: You can find it online. You just put Anton Chekhov, the student, and you'll find a text of it, PDF or, or on a web page or something. And Chekhov was this great late 19th, early 20th century Russian uh, writer, mostly short stories and plays. He wrote something like 600 short stories. He's the, Some people consider him the best short story writer ever. Um, he was, by the way, brought up in the church. I think his father was a deacon or something like that. He himself had an ambivalent, it appears, relationship to the church, or Russian Orthodox Church, obviously. But anyway, this little story is about a seminary student who's on his way home for Easter. And he stops, it's it's like Good Friday or something, and he stops at a little, in a little village near his home. And there are these two, you know, two widows, uh, An older widow and a younger widow, her daughter, they're both widows working on a fire. And and he asks them about the gospel stories uh, that they would have heard. It's the denial. And he he decides to tell them what he's just heard the the story of the denial, Peter's denial of Jesus. And they have a reaction to this. And then the story ends with him sort of thinking aloud what does this say about scripture? So I I, just read it. it, it's so short. It's, it's suggestive, it's not a set of an argument a proposition, but it's about the relation of scripture to time and to reality. So that's what I would suggest reading, uh, The Student by Chekhov. Um, obviously, there are other things one could read, uh, good books out there. Hans Boersma um, uh, has written some, some great books about the character of scripture. Um, there's a new book out, which doesn't necessarily buy what I'm saying, but it lays out a whole range of ways of thinking about scripture which i think is is helpful just for thinking more broadly by by a theologian named brad east e-a-s-t um he's got two books on scripture out but the one i'm thinking is uh, a, a sort of overview of sort of doc the doctrine of scripture giving mm-hmm. an outline to it um which includes some of these things anyway of my works, I'm sorry to say that not much. You you mentioned things online, so I would go to things I've written online.
0: Like not the First to... Things magazine, and I think the the Wycliffe website too, right? Don't you write for that? Yeah, and
1: there's a there's a site called Covenant, which is put out under the American Anglican um, um, magazine called uh, the Living Church, but it's a site that has a. Okay. As daily blogs, and I've written for that, and I've written on scripture for that a few little things um, which are meant to be accessible. So, good okay. luck for that. Yeah,
0: thank you. That was fun to chat with you and to,
1: to- it was a lot of fun, Wyatt. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I listen, nobody should, should, people should go to scripture. You see, this is the, the scripture is converting, the word of God is converting in and of itself. You don't need a theologian to tell you that and explain it, but you have Hmm. to spend time with it. That's a reality. So, Hmm. um, all right, Wyatt, thank you.